0: Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Recap. Uh, my name is Alex Johnson. I'm the creator of FinTech Takes, and joining me as he does every month is my friend and the author of the FinTech Business
1: Weekly newsletter, Jason Mikula. Mr. Mikula, how are you? Pretty good. I was just opining on the uh, pleasures of middle age, taking the dog to the vet, <laughs> uh, water leaks, but you know that's the price of being a homeowner. It really,
0: really is. I, um, my wife was teasing me cause I turned 35 this week and she's like, that's like legit middle age now. And so I was like, Oh, like, I don't really like to think of it that way.
1: But you know, you look around and all the hallmarks of like true middle age are all there. So I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, if we live to be like 120, or like Elon invents something so we can like download our consciousness into into a computer, I mean, what, what does middle age even mean at that point?
0: That's right. Well, I saw there was something viral bouncing around Twitter of someone who's figured out how to like reverse aging, if you can spend $2 million a year on all the things that they do, and quite frankly, have kind of a, a rough sounding day to day life in terms of what you have to do, but you can like send the aging process backwards. So I might look into that, I think $2 million a year is a
1: reasonable budget for me for that so we'll, we'll accept sponsorships um, <laughs> do you want to kick us off with our first news item
0: yes i am happy to do it in fact this one just came across my desk yesterday and so it's very fresh it's actually a story about revolute um, one of the the big challenger banks in europe and i guess globally they are launching a new super premium subscription tier called ultra which is a great name for a um, premium subscription tier, super premium. And as you might expect for in the same vein of like a kind of premium card program like Amex or uh, JPMorgan Chase, this gives customers who have ultra free lounge access to 1200 airports, I would imagine sort of elevated cash back, although the details were a little low on that, low fees on Revolut's investment products. And then apparently if you join the waitlist for Ultra, you can unlock 5% cash back on purchases made in the first month once you're part of this new premium tier. The context for this is interesting. Revolut has already a number of different subscription tiers, plus premium. Metal, which is an interesting name for a tier that range in price per month from $299 all the way up to $1299 a month. The price tag for this new ultra tier was not revealed. I kind of got the sense reading between the lines that the price, if indeed this new tier rolls out to the market, might be substantially higher than $1299 a month. I think that would be sort of my expectation if I was to look at other, um, you know, premium programs offered by other financial institutions in terms of like what an annual fee might be. But I don't know. I mean, I thought this was really interesting, largely because it fits into sort of a set of broader questions I have about Revolut. You know, obviously, they over the last couple of years have expanded very, very fast. They've raised a great deal of capital at very high valuations kind of prior to the downturn in VC funding and sort of the fall and later stage fintech valuations. And I'm just very curious, like, what exactly are they hoping to accomplish with this? Like how much of a sort of expansion into that ultra high net worth category do they think they can get? Is that really well aligned with their brand? Um, You know, there's been some reporting that I think last year they said that they had officially become profitable as a neobank. Um, profitable, I think we should use in quotation marks because there are some sort of questions there, not the least of which is the fact that we still actually haven't seen their books for 2021. Uh, there's been some sort of weird delays. I wrote about this in my newsletter around when they've actually had to file some of their um, numbers from 2021 with different uh, agencies in different European countries. They've actually gotten fined a couple of times for being late in doing that. So I'm not exactly sure what's going on there, but Jason, what were your thoughts on this news and sort of
1: Revolut more broadly? I mean, Revolut, it's definitely an outlier when we're talking about neobanks, mm-hmm. you know, both within its home market of the UK, you know, as well as, you know, sort of across the world. I mean, for people who are maybe less familiar with the backstory, I mean, Revolut primarily started its feature wedge was like cheap foreign exchange, right? So like normally, if you're in the UK and you went on holiday to like spain or france or whatever and you're using your barclay card you know you're getting pretty aggressively ripped off on the forex so sort of their entry point was okay you can load money on this prepaid debit card and we're going to give you a much better call it mid-market or whatever the real foreign exchange rate Mm -hmm. you know obviously since then they've expanded significantly both from like a product feature perspective, as well as geographically, you know, really, really aggressively. I mean, I was checking some of the numbers before we hopped on, and based on its last annual filing, which at this point would have been for, I think, 2021, it stated it operated in 35 countries, including the United States, through a partnership, I believe, with Metropolitan. And I mean, I kind of scratched my head at a couple things here. One, and I'm actually looking at the price plan comparison right now for the f- standard, so the free versus plus, premium, and metal, to have four, and now they're announcing a fifth tier yeah. f- for what's essentially a bank account, a checking account, or a current account, as you would call it there. And the comparison grid of like what you get versus what you don't is just like mind-bogglingly complex. Mm-hmm. And so I- I'm struggling to imagine who is on here parsing the difference between, you know, free versus three pounds, seven pounds, 13 pounds a month and deciding like, oh, yes, well, I get a slightly better interest rate. I can withdraw more money from an ATM and the fee on my crypto transfer, crypto exchange is less. So, yeah, metal is worth it. It just seems, frankly, needlessly complex. Mm-hmm. And then just to speak briefly to Revolut more broadly, it's kind of their playbook to announce things that may or may not be real. Mm hmm. I remember everyone, you know, big news cycle when they announced that they were going to get a a U.S. bank charter, which at this point I think was over a year ago, and they were seeking a California charter. I'm actually not sure if any of that paperwork was ever filed as far as seeking the charter and FDIC insurance. Mm -hmm. I mean, more product-specific examples, you know, they sort of touted a so-called U.S.-Mexico remittance corridor, which seemed to be a play to sort of specific audience within the U.S. But if you drilled into the details, it was just a regular swift transfer to a Mexican bank account that they were eating the fees on. Right, And so they seem to have a pattern of kind of making a big media splash, testing the waters of like, is this a real thing? What is the response? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe building it and doing it maybe not and then one last comment and then i'll let you (laughs) rebut any of that um (laughs) the thing around profitability is is also very interesting i remember whenever their last annual statements came out there were like dueling headlines of like mainstream press one talking about like profit has doubled referring to gross profit one talking about losses like tripling or something (laughs) and i remember parsing through that and At the time, anyway, Revolut was using an interesting definition of gross profit, where they just happened to use adjusted revenue, which inflated revenue for unrealized gains on crypto when crypto was going up. Oh, yeah. And then just casually excluded direct costs and onboarding expenses. And it's like, at that point, what... What is this? You're just counting all the revenue, but none of the costs associated with the revenue. And I'm not an accountant. But to my understanding, that's not conventionally how gross profit is defined. (laughs) So to have, you know, Nick, and I cannot say his last name, out there repeatedly saying, you know, we're profitable, we're profitable, but simultaneously, like, oh, the UK regulator criticized their audit firm BDO, and their books have not been filed on time. Something is definitely going on there
0: yeah no I agree i mean i I think that you know to your point, if you're counting unrealized gains on crypto and not counting uh the cost to acquire users, which I've heard that the grapevine is kind of expensive in uh neobank land that um maybe you're not being a hundred percent forthright in terms of your accounting and i I think your point about the uh sort of pattern that they have of like announcing things or launching things, but then not actually really following through and just kind of throwing as much spaghetti at the wall as possible is really interesting, right? I mean, the more sort of traditional positive spin on that behavior is they ship fast, right? And they talk about that. They brag about that as like a sort of... um Cultural sort of DNA thing at that company is, you know, we move fast. We don't wait for anything. We constantly are testing and iterating and shipping new, new features and new ideas and new products. And that's like a very attractive way of framing your company's operating behavior when you're pitching to VCs. At least it used to be like, you know, speed of shipping code is sort of the thing that I think VCs look for in terms of tech investments and where they want to put their bets. However, I think you're touching on something really important, which is there's a difference between shipping new products or features and sort of giving the performative feel of shipping new products and features without necessarily doing it. Right. And that's easier or, I guess, more tempting to do in financial services where when you're shipping a new product, you're not just shipping code, you're shipping new bank charters or licenses or sort of regulatory work that you're having to lay the groundwork on. You're shipping new um, teams that are acquiring customers in new regions like in financial services, it's much more complicated to launch something like crypto investing or expanding into a new country. It's not just shipping new code and having an agile methodology for doing that. So, I do sort of wonder if the mentality at Revolut of we just have to move fast has maybe sort of overcome their good sense a bit in terms of like, well, wait, what's actually valuable to customers? And do we really need five different subscription tiers? And at what point are we sort of seeing diminishing returns there? And so, there is an element element of moving so fast that you sort of trip over your own feet. And, um, you know, it reminds me of the John Wooden quote, um, be quick, but don't hurry, right? Like there is an element of striking a good balance there. And it feels like Revolut is
1: sort of off balance to a degree. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. I mean, even thinking about the geographic component to this, I'm not aware of any other neobank that operates in such a disparate collection of geographies. Yes, services like WISE, which sort of are inherently multinational, operate in a lot of places, but I'm not aware of any sort of like more vanilla-ish neobank that has expanded so aggressively. And I kind of question, and frankly, I think this is an an unanswered question at this point, how well uh, something like you know, revolutes, proposition, scales into discrete geographies. Mm-hmm. It's not clear to me that there are, and I'm going to use my like least favorite corporate speak word, synergies <laughs> or economies of scale in geographic expansion. You know, I think a case could be made in a somewhat unified economic block. So in the EU, although it doesn't tend to be as simple or straightforward as people sometimes think it is. But it's not like that is all Revolut has done. They either have launched or are planning to launch in Mexico. They have been live in the U.S. for quite a while. They were in beta in Canada and pulled out. Mm -hmm. And these are very, very different markets with different dynamics. Perhaps you have some common software layer that you don't need to rebuild in each geography. But Mm -hmm. even then, it will need to be tailored for... The local operating environment, whether that's you know integrating with ACH in the U.S. or local payment systems in Mexico, meeting local regulatory like compliance definitions, obligations, etc. So, I mean, in a time where we're seeing you know universal global banks like Citi and HSBC very purposely shrink their retail footprint. The only example I can really point to of somebody sort of aggressively expanding, if you set aside Chase in the UK, but, like, really aggressively saying, like, we're going to be, like, a global Mm -hmm. super app for finance, you know, Revolut is really the only one pushing towards that, and it's not yet clear to me that that strategy is going to pay off for them, but I'm often wrong, so... No, I, I think you hit on it exactly right. I mean, I remember
0: seeing when I think it was maybe last year, Klarna was talking about their results and sort of they're similar, I think, maybe in terms of like aggressive international expansion. Or at least they were. Um, they're not obviously a neobank, but kind of somewhat similar. And one of the things they shared kind of quietly in talking about their results was that their loss rates spike whenever they go to a new country, right? And it it was kind of somewhat counterintuitive from what they had been talking about in terms of like, we can scale, we know all of this stuff about like consumers and how they buy. And we have these really, you know, well-trained machine learning algorithms that we use for underwriting and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is every new market you go to is different and you end up taking losses from a credit perspective. You end up, you know, incurring more costs from a customer acquisition perspective. And then obviously from a compliance perspective, like compliance, Compliance does not scale hardly at all because you have entirely new environments you have to operate in. So I think that's a good call out and something to uh, continue to watch with them. Um, Should we jump to our next story? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, this one's Um, all you. I think you broke this one, didn't you?
1: Yes, I got assigned the title of Chief Sleuthing Officer. I saw that. uh, Which I have updated my LinkedIn to to reflect (laughs) that. I guess paying attention to the footers on fintech websites is uh, something I can add to my CV. (laughs) No one does that better than you, buddy. Yeah, uh, apparently. Um, (laughs) I don't even know what I was looking for on Chime's website, but I did notice a link out to NMLS, which for those who are... Have a life and don't pay attention to this. It's the nat- <laughs> oh. national multi-state licensing service. And I'm like, huh. I don't think I've seen this before. And when I got to poking around, realized that Chime had set up a new subsidiary, Chime Capital LLC, which had acquired a number of licenses, state licenses, for lending and related things, so collections credit services organizations, which can do a couple of different things depending on the jurisdiction, loan brokering licenses. And the to me, the very strong implication there is that Chime is slowly preparing to actually ramp up the lending that it does. So I mean, to date, as far as I'm aware, the only lending it's done has been in the form of its SpotMe overdraft product, but not any sort of, true structured credit product, whether open-ended revolving. Uh, It does have a sort of secured card or semi-secured card for credit building. But again, that's in theory fully collateralized. Mm -hmm. So the procurement of these licenses strongly suggests that they're gearing up to make some kind of bigger push into lending. Alex, do you think they're ready? Is now the right time to start lending to lower income, potentially lower credit score applicants? Oh, well, that's, uh, I feel like that's a setup for a very easy answer. I mean, I guess I have
0: two thoughts on this. One is that going off of what we were talking about before, Chime is kind of like the anti-revolute in terms of like speed. And I say that as a compliment, right? Not as a diss. Um, like Chime is very, thoughtful about when and how they expand their product set. like they move slowly, they seemingly take a lot of care in terms of like how they're doing things. They haven't jumped into lending so far outside of the spot me product, even though I think it's been obvious for a long time that that's kind of their really only kind of easy path to, uh, you know, becoming profitable and generating more revenue. But, you know, you have to say easy in quotation marks, because I think you're exactly right this is a terrible time to get into lending, at least on the surface. I mean, you know, setting aside their customer base, which I'll circle back to just from a macro economic perspective, I spent last week reading through all the banks' earnings reports, uh, speaking of not having a life. And um, I, uh, I was struck by the number of banks that basically said, yeah, we're cautiously optimistic still about our lending books, but we are increasing our loan loss reserves and our allowances for losses. We are starting to see some weakening in terms of uh, particularly consumers' ability to uh, repay. We're seeing delinquencies start to creep up a little bit. And just generally, you know, consumers are running out of cash, right? We had a surplus during COVID thanks to stimulus, but that's running out. And, um, you know, inflation is taking a big bite out of that and sort of accelerating that process. So I think in terms of credit quality, just across the board, lenders are kind of nervous right now, when you then factor in the rising cost of capital, that's another challenge, right? I mean, banks have these big bases of deposits that you know their deposit betas are still actually quite good because consumers kind of haven't realized that they should be getting paid higher rates. And so banks have been able to hold down deposit rates fairly successfully so far. That's good for banks. That doesn't matter for Chime, right? Chime doesn't have access to that capital. And if you don't have access to deposits, the cost of, you know, getting capital to lend has gone up and up and up. And if I was a sort of uh, investment bank or other capital provider, debt facilities provider, and Chime came to me, I mean, again, I would have respect for Chime and the way that they operate. I think they're among all of the neobank's relatively safe bet to lend money to. But this is then where the customer base comes into it, right? And, um, Chime, obviously, they specialize in serving, uh, lower income consumers. They specialize in serving underbanked consumers, credit invisible consumers. The other sort of lending adjacent product that they have is their credit builder card, which I think is actually really interesting because on the surface, you'd kind of say, well, that credit building card, that segment of their customers, that should be where they start their lending, right? Like, hey, we've helped you build your credit score. We've increased your credit score from, you know, a 640 to a 680 or whatever it is. Um You should be ready to take on these greater sort of responsibilities in terms of whether it's kind of a personal loan or, um, you know, other type of short-term credit, or maybe it's a credit card, who knows. I think the reality, though, with that particular product is, and I've written about this before, those credit builder products, particularly the one that Chime has, are kind of deceptive in terms of how good the customer's credit worthiness actually is, right? Because they make it so safe for the customer to use that there's really no work required by the customer to like actively manage their credit obligations in order to see their score go up. It just sets aside money as you use the card. And then at the end of the month, the exact amount of money that you need to pay your balance is just sitting right there. It's really kind of like having training wheels rather than actually riding a bike without training wheels. So I don't know that those 680s, as an example, are going to perform like 680s for Chime. And that I think would also make me a little bit nervous. What do you think?
1: No, I think that's exactly right. Potentially, there are some things Chime could do in product structure to try to de-risk, right? So I would imagine that, you know, they're not going to go out of the gate and be like, hey, anyone who has a Chime account, like, please come apply for a, whatever, $1,000, dollars 4000 loan. You know, it's going to be restricted to, you know, accounts that have been open for a certain amount of time to help screen for fraud. Yep, I would imagine it's going to be restricted to accounts that have, you know, direct deposit over a certain threshold. Totally. I would strongly assume that they would very much encourage people to opt in to auto repayment. I don't believe that you can require auto repayment as a condition of the extension of credit. This is not legal advice. There have been some fintech companies that have gone the other way on that. So yeah, we're not giving legal advice, but you might want to look into that. Yeah, this is not legal advice. But generally <laughs> speaking, you can't require people to repay in a certain way as a condition of extending credit. I think there are some ideas around how they could try to carve out a niche within their user base. As far as your point around, you know, will users who've been through this secured card credit building cycle perform the way that they might look like on paper? I think you have that exactly right. I mean, that was 100% my experience actually at LendUp, which the structure was a little bit different. But the idea was, if you've borrowed and repaid a certain number of you know, short duration small dollar loans. You know, you can have access to you know, a small line credit card, and like lo and behold, the behavior on the credit card was max it out, make them in payments, and then default. Right, and it's like, oh, but like, look, like they repaid these loans, but then when we gave them this other product, they behaved basically like you would expect them to, which is unfortunate. I mean, I'm 100 pro innovation and trying to find sort of novel ways to. You know, extend credit to customers who historically either would not have had access or would not have had access at reasonable uh, sub 36 affordable price points. Mm -hmm. So hopefully Chime is is working with the wealth of data it has on its customers and some innovative product design choices to try to do something along these lines.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think just one last note on that. I think that also ties back into the reports that came out last year around them wanting to acquire daily pay the earned wage access provider. And I think it's very much along the lines of what you said, which is we don't really feel comfortable just doing traditional lending the way that everyone else does to our customer base. But we feel it's our responsibility and also sort of a business imperative that we do lend money to them. So how can we do it in a different way? And you know, earned wage access, while I have my problems with it, does have several sort of inherent advantages to it, right? I mean, it a lot of times can be um, sort of sponsored by, or at least the cost can be somewhat offset by the employer. So there's sort of a different way to monetize and a different way to sort of shift the costs around. And typically those things come with, um, sort of direct integration to the payroll system, which I don't, to my knowledge, think Chime has sort of visibility into payroll data yet. And whether they get it through an acquisition of a earned wage access company, or if they just go through sort of, uh, these payroll API companies and try to get access that way, that would be another avenue for, um, kind of de-risking these customers and giving them sort of a different way of looking at not only like direct deposit, but how much money is going into your bank account before you get direct deposit? And what is the sort of reliability of your income streams? And, you know, maybe even going so far as having the, um, you know, sort of loans that you can do against a payroll system where you can actually automatically kind of garnish their income that's coming in in order to repay a loan. Those might be other ways to kind of de-risk for this population. So it'd be interesting to see if they go there as well.
1: We uh hopefully find out sometime this year. I mean, up next, are you and I going to be competing with Robinhood for readers soon? Yes, we are. So
0: uh, the excellent transition. As some folks may know, uh, Robinhood, in addition to being a very fun brokerage to trade stocks and cryptocurrencies, also is in the newsletter business. A while back, they acquired a newsletter called Snacks, which... I haven't looked at the um, most recent numbers, but it's kind of outrageously popular in terms of like the number of subscribers. Like I think I saw it in a Matt Levine column one time where he was talking about Snacks and Robinhood and the number of subscribers. And it like kind of is a shockingly high number. So this very sort of small, successful newsletter comes out uh, every day, I think. And it basically um, sort of gives people bite-sized updates on what's going on in the economy, uh, news. There's a bit of a sort of investing slant to it, as you might imagine. And it was announced recently that Robinhood is doubling down, tripling down on um, that investment by bringing in um, some experienced media operators to basically create sort of a standalone media brand, which is going to be rebranded as Sherwood. A nod to its, uh, I have to say, wonderful branding. I mean, say what you love about Robin Hood, but like the brand, the logo, the name, the whole thing at work. So Sherwood is going to be the name of this new publication. They're apparently hiring a lot of staff and writers and editors. They're going to be breaking news stories. They're going to be doing reporting on politics. I think it still will probably have a bit of a uh, tie back to uh, Robinhood and investing and hopefully we'll sort of have some synergies there. But it also sounds like they're going to try to make money as a media company. And that's why they're hiring these experienced media professionals to come in and and drive it and oversee it. I find this fascinating. I also found it interesting, somewhat in contrast with um, the announcement a while back that Robinhood was going to be getting into 401ks and launching a 401k product that would come with a 1% match provided by Robinhood. So instead of your employer providing a match on your 401k, uh, it would be Robinhood providing a 1% match. The caps on that and the sort of limitations on that mean that they're really only spending kind of a minimal amount. So think of it as almost a customer acquisition cost sort of tacked on to this, but it's, you know, clever marketing. And it's something that I don't think you see outside of employer sponsored plans for the most part. And, you know, I guess I just have sort of a vague general question for you, Jason, which is like, what the hell's going on? Like, what is Robinhood doing? I know that they, just looking at sort of the history over the last couple of years, it obviously hasn't been going well since the um, height of the meme stock mania. I think their share price is down around $9 a share, which is down from 55 at a high when they uh,
1: IPO'd. So like, what's happening here? What are they trying to do with these moves? I mean, I should have looked up this number before we recorded this. I want to say that they have like, quite a significant amount of cash on hand, right? So if you've gone through this IPO process, you know, you have, I won't say unlimited, but a significant amount of money Mm -hmm. and your core business, where they were making most of their money, you know, trading AMC and GameStop and crypto. And it's like, oh man, like these people aren't doing these things that they did last year. Right. You know, what is a new direction we can go that's going to be in some way related to our core business and hopefully accretive to revenue? Yeah. And apparently, every company wants to be an advertising company. And I mean, we've seen some companies, Amazon particularly comes to mind, make very strong plays by leveraging their core business, core data set, user base, um, and platform to then you know, also produce revenue through advertising, through selling ads. It's not immediately clear to me. What the strategy is? I mean, I guess advertising, sponsored stuff. I think one of the articles I read also mentioned events. Right, but as, as you and I both know very well, this <laughs> is a very crowded and competitive space. You know, the media space, the live event space, where even you know, even well-funded, professionally run companies are not always successful. I'm thinking of Protocol, which shut down, you know, late last year great publication too their coverage is awesome yeah yeah i loved it i was yeah. very disappointed when it shut down so if i'm trying to think about this in the context of robin hood's core business okay maybe they get some ad revenue but is it a retention play is it a customer acquisition play is it they're trying to boost you know average revenue per user by like subtly suggesting trading ideas uh yeah it's been described as an independent unit with editorial independence Uh, it's a bit of a head scratcher you know a lot of companies have tried this i think the ones that are the most successful think of it around thought leadership and brand building and the two i always point to are Andreessen, which like kind of engineered this like you don't need to go to the media because you own your own sort of distribution mindset. Right. I think Goldman also does a pretty good job of it or in the classic, you know, consulting space. Think of all the reports you read from like McKinsey or BCG. Sure. But those are lead gen into, you know, brand building and like lead gen into some other business. So, yeah, the Robinhood Hood leaving me scratching my head a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the examples you mentioned are good ones right and it's it is interesting because like with McKinsey and BCG and those guys it's a very clear connection from like, I'm writing a report about, wow, something's changing with the way that these businesses work and businesses should really do this. And then like the obvious follow-up is, well, could you help us do that? Yes, we can. And then it goes right into a consulting engagement. So it's very sort of clear that way, how that connection works. And I think it's the same thing with, you know, Andreessen and other VC firms doing media. Like it leads right into conversations with founders about that. Sarthe says, well, come talk to us, blah, blah, blah. So that connection makes a lot of sense to me. The Robin Hood one makes less sense. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't read snacks, and so I don't know if they already do a really good job of sort of subtly steering people towards different investments and driving investment behavior. I haven't really heard that that's true, and I kind of struggle to envision how you would do that and still have an entertaining product, but maybe. But I think the the connection there is more tenuous. The other thing to note is that Andreessen made a big splash doing their future publication, and they actually wound that down, right? And so even people who have seen a lot of success In doing media, when you double down or triple down on it, it's not always necessarily going to be a good use of resources, right? I mean, I think you and I can speak to the fact personally that you can always pour more resources into creating great content, right? It's kind of a bottomless hole in terms of like, well, I could do a little more research. We could hire one more person to go help me kind of chase this story down. Like, you can pour endless amounts of resources into creating great content. There's not an endless return on the other side of that. And so I think finding that line is really difficult, particularly if it's not your core business. I think like the analogy I keep thinking about with Robin Hood is kind of to the broader point about what are they doing? It's a little bit like a young person going to college, right? Where it's like, you go to college first semester, you know, you get invited to all these parties, you rush your fraternity, it's like, wow, this is the greatest thing ever, I'm having so much fun. And then you kind of come down off of the high of doing that, you're a little hungover, your grades have suffered, your parents have called and been like, what the hell are you spending our money on? And And then you're like, okay, seriously, I'm going to button down. It's going to be great. And then like sophomore year, you know, are still going to the fraternity. You're still a member. You're still going to a lot of parties. You're still going to football games. But you also have told your parents that you're going to be majoring in accounting. And that's like a really you know responsible, sober field. They're going to think that's great. And also you joined the school newspaper and you're going to be doing some journalism on the side and that might turn into a job. And it's like I think that there's an element of trying to appease parents by showing growth and expansion into all of these new areas while still also kind of having that sort of partying mentality sort of sitting underneath the surface. And I I don't know that to extend the analogy to torturous lengths, if I was uh, an investor in Robinhood, if I was one of their parents, I don't know that I would totally be reassured by these directions. But um, I don't know, maybe it's early. Maybe they will become a great accountant or, or journalist in the future. I'm not sure.
1: I mean, I guess we both need to subscribe, read it and like check back in in uh, like six months.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, listeners just wait for Jason and I to apologize for uh, slagging Robin Hood's efforts here in, in six months. When, when they win a Pulitzer Prize or uh, I guess whatever the journalist equivalent is of that, like that's what we're going to be doing six months from now. So um, until then, should we jump to our last story?
1: Yeah, ending on a, on a bummer. Oh, uh, Capital One layoffs cutting 1,100 tech positions. The company announced specifically that it's eliminating its agile job family and integrating those functions into existing engineering and product manager roles. The statement said the agile role in our tech organization was past tense critical to our earlier transformation phases, but as our organization matured, the natural next step is to integrate Agile delivery processes directly into our core engineering practices. So those 1,100 workers will have the opportunity to apply for existing open roles at Cap 1, but they're basically shutting down that framework for how Agile was working with technologists and business units across cap one, I mean, a couple of different angles on this, but I mean, I think the first one is have big banks overspent on hiring engineers, overspent on technology, Alex?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they have. I mean, I think that um Capital One obviously is on the cutting edge of all this stuff, right? Like they're generally seen to be one of the sharpest bigger banks when it comes to certainly analytics and credit risk management, but also technology. They build a lot of their own stuff in-house. I think even like I, I've worked for a number of uh, tech vendors that sell to banks and every time you're selling to Capital One, it's a little bit like, eh, I don't know if this is actually gonna like, end up generating a lot of revenue for us, or if it's just them trying to sort of learn from the things we know and then go build it themselves. Like, they're very sharp. They build a lot of their own stuff. I've used their um, products as a consumer, and, you know, the mobile stuff that they have is great. Like, they, they do a good job with technology. So I think that when they say we are sort of moving past this phase of our digital transformation and we've sort of accomplished our digital transformation goals... I don't know that I totally believe that as sort of the framing or the reason for this move. And the reason for that is, you know, to someone like Capital One, like they're smart enough to know digital transformation is not something you stop doing, right? It's something that like is a permanent state for your institution if you want to compete in financial services. They know that better than any other bank in the country. And so I don't think that that framing is exactly right. I think probably what's more likely is that they, like everyone, both in banking and in fintech and in tech broadly, sort of got caught up in this war for talent over the last um, couple of years. And, you know, low interest rates and VC investment in fintech and tech really, I think, put everyone in the position of, well, this is the going rate for tech talent, right? This is what we have to pay for this. And, you know, if they don't want to live in, you know, Virginia, they want to be based on New York or based in San Francisco. Well, that's kind of what we have to do to get these folks. And so I think that when we see tech layoffs that are happening outside of startups and outside of places where we know, hey, these companies generate revenue, you know, they have enough money to cover these things. I think that's more an indication of, sort of the hangover of this tech spending uh, and spending on tech talent that just got a little out of control, even for some of the more sort of sober actors in the space, like a Capital One.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I first read this, I was trying to picture what some sort of convoluted org chart (laughs) looked like. Well, because it was like, this was separate over here, but now we're integrating into our engineering talent. It's kind of weird, right? Well, which I can try to imagine, right? I mean, when I was at Goldman, and this is probably still the case, engineering was like a separate division of the bank, right? So even when we were building markets, like technically the engineers I worked with were not in our division, they were Mm -hmm. in some other division and they were sort of like tasked to like, you know, this business unit. Mm -hmm. And so there were sort of like delineations there. So, I mean, when I read this, I'm kind of wondering like, oh, okay, was there some sort of like very long process where, you know, different product lines, different business units used to do, Whatever, waterfall development, which I mean, that would have hopefully been a long time ago. But, uh, (laughs) and at some point, the decision was made okay, well, we're going to like transition to this new software development lifecycle. And the way we're going to do that is like stand up this separate thing over here to like teach you how to do Scrum and teach you how to do Agile. This is pure speculation based on like how this release is phrased. I mean, I think you're probably right that it's just like, you know, disguised layoffs. But yeah, I did find the way that it was worded very, very big banky and very like, oh, like, I think it's probably true that you don't want to treat this as like a separate function as opposed to like these other people who are doing the day to day work. But you also probably overhired and overpaid. And this is just like a convenient way to shrink that headcount a bit.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I I mean, I think that a sort of a, a macro question that I've been sort of thinking about after seeing this news is just like, what is the ideal distribution of resources within a company that provides financial services, right? And if you ask Chime that question or Revolut for that matter... It would be, I think, very heavily weighted toward tech, right? Like tech would be the sort of core function within the organization that everything else revolves around. And then it's like, how many compliance people do we need? How many marketing people do we need? You know, how many customer service people do we need? And you sort of try to trim back in those other areas. I think banks have a very just sort of different mindset for obvious reasons around that, which is you know the core of what we do is customer service. The core of what we do is risk management. The core of what we do is compliance. Tech has been this sort of extra muscle that we've been building up that's kind of not in our core, but it's like this muscle that's very impressive and that we needed to build up to sort of show people we could do it. But it's not core to what we do. And again, going back to the big bank earnings that I was going through and listening to, they were all talking about and I didn't see Capital One's because they hadn't announced theirs yet, maybe because they were still making some some changes. But um, I did definitely see a theme of we're still hiring in tech, we're still investing in tech, but we're not doing it at quite the same insane levels that we were. And I, I can't remember which of the big banks it was that said, you know, someone asked him about technology investment. And a couple of years ago, the answer would have been, we were investing in tech, we're going to commit, you know, 10% of our budget or 15% of our budget or whatever to tech spend exclusively, because we know it's important. And we want to signal that to the market. This answer this year was more like, you know, we evaluate every investment on its merits and where it makes sense, we do it and where we doesn't make sense, we cut back. And that to me was sort of code for We're not going to just like throw money at technology the way that we have been. And we are still going to open some branches, even if like our overall number of branches is shrinking. We're going to open some in markets that we really like, right? Like Fifth Third was talking about in the southeastern United States, we have a branch based growth strategy and it's working really well for us. So I do think the shine has come off a little bit in banking on we just need to throw huge amounts of money at
1: tech and just hope that it kind of drags us into the future and one last comment on that and then we can wrap it up for today. I think your comment on sort of different functions being in the forefront is very consistent with my experience in sort of startup fintech land where usually it was engineering or maybe a combination like engineering, data science, product. And you know, in my time in more traditional banking land, I would describe it as very business led, so Mm -hmm. credit risk management, operational risk management, customer service, you know, marketing even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I got to shine for once. Um, (laughs) But it is it is very different if you're thinking about, you know, tech engineering is the forefront of what we do and we're gonna sort of hire and prioritize that versus, you know, tech engineering is an enabler, but like our core DNA is these other things. With that, should we uh, do our can't let it go? We should.
0: And I think that for you, you had uh, staked your claim to a can't let it go very
1: early. So I'm gonna let you go first. I know I need to. Okay, I'll do two very, very short ones. Excellent. The first one, not that I've ever watched a beauty pageant, but apparently recently there was the I think it was the Miss Universe pageant. And Miss El Salvador for, I guess, like a costume competition question mark portion of it <laughs> was dressed essentially as a giant golden Bitcoin. Given that this is an audio medium, I mean, just do yourself a favor and just Google Miss El Salvador Bitcoin and you'll see exactly what I mean. And then for my second very quick one, which just popped into my inbox today, a pet peeve of mine, which is when companies raise money, put out a big, splashy press release, and don't differentiate between equity and debt. So I will not name the offender, but they were bragging about their $100 million seed round. And I was like, that does not sound right. (laughs) And usually somewhere in the release, they'll specify, like, we raised this amount of equity and then a much larger debt facility for lending etc the release did not specify just says we raised a 100 million dollar seed round so wow guys don't don't do that you know real journalists won't take you seriously substack writers will not take you seriously just like if you raise money specify you know actually what was the equity component and then if there's venture debt or debt facility for lending specify that separately that is my advice Alex that's a good one no, I uh I
0: that bugs me I've, I've never seen I don't know that I've seen one where they didn't differentiate somewhere in the fine print that's like a another level but I I do see that a lot where it's like they raised you know a combined 80 million dollars and you're like wait what and then you look at it and it's like actually five million dollars and the other is 75 million dollars of debt that they have to pay back so no I um I share Jason's plea to please don't do that. Please just like, we know the game. We understand, like, just give us the facts. Mine is crypto related, uh, shockingly. And um, it's one that caused my brain to actually break, which is that the, Bankrupt Crypto Hedge Fund, Three Arrows Capital, or 3AC, the founders of that company are, while still navigating the bankruptcy process and maybe being a little resistant to that liquidation process by some reporting, are trying to raise new funds for a new company, which would be an exchange for trading crypto bankruptcy claims. And I just... I think I passed out when I read that, actually. I think I, like, lost consciousness and then woke up and, like, called my loved ones to make sure everything was still okay. Like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Just for a little bit of history, in case we've forgotten, um, Three Arrows Capital was one of the first companies to implode. In the crypto space, when we started having this big downturn, um, because they were wildly irresponsible in the trading and speculation that they were doing. And a lot of the contagion that's still been knocking around the crypto ecosystem started very early with them. So to then come out with a new exchange proposal to buy up the bankruptcy claims of retail traders who actually were harmed by these founders and their irresponsible behavior in this uh, market. And then buying those for pennies on the dollar because, quote unquote, there is a clear need to unlock this claims market, which they claim to be about $20 billion in size. And saying that this new exchange could dominate within two to three months and even saying that it could fill the power vacuum left by FTX within the crypto trading ecosystem is breathtaking to me they apparently are trying to raise a $25 million seed round and trying to get this platform into place by the end of February, which is aggressive. But I mean, they know this market. They know what people were paying for this. So I have to think that they think there's at least a reasonable chance that someone would pony up that money. And I, I got to say, you know, $25 million to the people who crashed the crypto ecosystem seems like both a really predatory idea and also a really stupid idea simultaneously.
1: I hate everything about this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's just, um, it's, mm. it's bad. It's I hate everything about this. Is the perfect way to sum it up. In fact, we might just have to title the whole episode yeah. that because that is just like so so bad. Um, Jason, with that, let's leave it there. Um, thank you as always for joining me. This was super fun, and um, we'll be back at it next month.